Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to the Outer Sanctum, a special fifth quarter. I am Rana Hussain. Welcome back. If you listen to this week's episode, you will have heard a bit of my interview with Shane McCurry. And that was a little snippet because Shane and I can talk for hours and hours. So instead of playing the full thing for you in the episode, we thought we'd drop the full conversation here for you today for your weekend. But if you haven't listened to the episode on Wednesday, make sure you go back and listen to it. It was a cracker. I laughed the whole way through. This conversation is a slightly longer one. It's Shane and I chatting about all things culture and leadership. It's one of those conversations where you sit back with a cup of tea and just have a bit of a relax and listen to a really incredible, intelligent guy who works in leadership and sport. For two decades, Shane McCurry has worked with the biggest names across high-performance sport, business, government, and education settings. His thought leadership practice is dedicated to helping individuals, teams, and organizations grow and thrive through a values-based approach focused on purpose, connection, and storytelling. And he kind of goes into all three of those things. I met Shane when he first started working at the Richmond Football Club where I was working and he and I just have the best conversations and so I thought I'd bring a little bit of that to your ears. Uh, There's so much more we could have gone into but we just touch on culture and leadership. I hope you love it. I love chatting with Shane. This episode's for the organizational development nerds, anyone into leadership and culture, and really the conversations that the clubs who really care about culture are starting to have. There's a real movement now in the AFL. It's great insights from a leading practitioner. I really hope you enjoy it. Before we dive in, I just want to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. I was born and raised on Wurundjeri land, and as the child of a migrant family, I really understand the fact that we are so privileged and lucky to be here. And that is in spite of the survival of the Wurundjeri people. So I pay my respects to their elders and I acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Please enjoy my conversation with Shane McCurry. Welcome to the show, Shane. I have so much to talk to you about and so much to ask you and nowhere near enough time to do it. You work in culture and leadership, mainly in sport. What does a leadership and culture consultant do? 
<laughs> it's a really good question. I um I remember having a conversation with my uh, father, uh, who I grew up in country Victoria, um, a little town called Rochester, who are doing it tough right at the moment with some pretty bad flooding. The river's rising as we speak, and the mm. community are banding together and sandbagging and trying to prepare all of the houses um for almost imminent evacuation, which um is a little bit nerve wracking, but um, I I grew up in, in country Victoria and um, my father still lives back there. And I still remember a conversation with him very early doors when I started off down this path. And he said to me one day, uh, what should I tell people that you do for work? <laughs> I know that feeling. <laughs> and it was a really interesting question. It was almost like, what's the pub test for, uh, <laughs> you know, what your job description actually is as, as a culture and leadership consultant? I think, you know, in its simplest form, you help organisations create an environment that gets the very best out of their people, but that is an environment that the people themselves love being there, I think. So it's it's how can you you find that right mix between being a, a high-performing high or high-achieving organisation and generate output and outcomes and results, but you do that in a way that actually creates a fulfilling and a rewarding experience for everyone that's involved. So when a club invites you in, what are they normally saying to you? What are they asking you to do? I think they're they're wanting to go on a journey of understanding or defining, you know, what it is that they stand for, what are the things that are important to them from a purpose and values viewpoint, and then what are the best ways of cascading that through the organization so that people understand why they're there. They understand why they're doing what they're doing and they can have a lot of fun in the process of executing their role day to day. So sometimes, you know, they'll be low performing organizations that, uh, you know, have gone through a sustained period of poor performance, perhaps. They could be an organization that's just starting together for the first time or a team that's just coming together for the first time. Other times it'll be a really high performing organization that's had a lot of success over a long period of time, but they're looking for another level. So the teams tend to be at sort of different stages of the journey. And some of them, I, I quite pride myself on working um, with clients for a longer period of time. So some of my clients have been with for five, six, seven, eight years. And so some of them have actually gone through that cycle of ups and downs over that period of time where they might have been sort of lower performing at the start of the journey and then they've they've achieved a bit of success and then they might have dipped for a bit and come back again. And so it's it's quite enjoyable uh, because you're there as a, a support mechanism, I suppose, effectively. I'm really big. I'm probably a bit different to, to most people that do what I do in this regard, but my sole focus is trying to build capability and build capacity. So it's not about my voice. It's not about me being in front of the group. Um, it's about how do you best prepare the people that are in the environment to drive their own conversation about who they are, what they stand for, where they've come from, where they're at and where they'd like to. A lot of what you do is around leadership and and I'm interested in what you've learned about leadership as a capability and how that's changed over time because the world has changed so much. Has leadership changed with it? Oh, it has enormously, hasn't it? I think we're seeing that, you know, in all industries, full stop, but particularly in sport whereby you know, people that are involved in sport, whether they like it or not, and I think hopefully we're getting to a place where more than not, like it than not <laughs> is that that position of that you're a role model when you're involved in sport sport is such a, a great vehicle for social change and when you're involved in sport you've got a lot of people who 
who love sport. They love to watch the players train. They love to watch the players play. They listen to the player voices. They follow players and athletes on social media. So they're looking for for not just a, a great performer, but they're looking for uh, people that they can relate to. And I think that's a big part of the shift in the leadership space, particularly in sport, is that we're seeing that, you know, we want you know, holistic human beings, you know, people who are, are not just one-dimensional around being able to do one thing, but they're actually people who have a voice about issues that go beyond just um, just sport. And people want to see... They, they want to see people who are authentic as well too. They, they don't want to see these perfect robotic shells of a human being who do things the right way all of the time. I think that there's that space we're seeing now. You know, we, we use that word vulnerability. It gets used a lot, but we want to see people who are, who are real and authentic and, and imperfect. And, and I think that that's uh, probably a big shift we're seeing in the leadership space is how do you balance the need to perform well uh, and execute your role and maintain high standards, but at the same time demonstrate that you're a human being at the end of the day, and that's okay, and that's a good thing, and we should try to embrace and celebrate that a bit more. Just on vulnerability, so many of the spaces that you work in are quite male-dominated, whether it's Storm, um, Rabbitohs, the Tigers. Traditionally, masculinity hasn't wanted to have conversations about vulnerability and have kind of gone running from that concept but that seems to have changed i'm interested if you see masculinity changing oh 100 and i think that the other thing that's changed rana is that the profile of those environments is no longer it still is male dominated in terms of there are more men than women but there are more women in those environments than ever before in the past and i think that in itself is a fantastic thing because if you even sort of rewind back to five six seven years ago and it's still the case for some teams right around the world, but even in Australia, is that there are only men in some of those environments. Now, not all of them, but in some, there there is a a, a big number of, of males and, and very few women, if any at all. And I think if, if that's the profile of your uh, team or football department, for example, then it's a real shame because you should be striving to have your team environment be a microcosm of society wherever possible and based on gender based on cultural background even just the age component is something where you want to have a a really diverse mix of people you know i think the diverse Mm -hmm. teams are the best teams the diverse cultures are the strongest cultures uh, yes, it takes longer to get a diverse group of people to click, but the the outcomes are so much more sustainable if if you've got that. So I think that's what we're seeing. And certainly, a lot of the environments that are working you encourage those environments to have lots of women involved because that in itself is a great thing. Because then the male athletes are being exposed to conversations day to day as they would be out in the community day to day, and that's a, a good thing and a healthy thing. But I think that the the question you asked around masculinity is that we do have a lot of conversations around what does healthy masculinity look like in 2022 and what does unhealthy masculinity look like perhaps and and even sort of who are some of the more positive male role models in your life and then who are some of the less positive male role models in your life. And we've all got 
um, positive and negative role models in our life for different reasons. And it's good to actually talk about that and identify, well, what is it about those positive role models that you like and that you're drawn to and attracted to? And then what are some of the perhaps less desirable traits and, um, and how can you best protect yourself from displaying those same traits yourself? And there's some great organisations out there that um, collaborate with on a regular basis. And two of them I've mentioned because their work's fantastic and people might want to check them out. One is the the, the Man Cave, Hunter Johnson and, and his team who are doing some amazing work uh, in schools, in the community groups, the sporting teams right around the country. The other organisations, Tomorrow Man, Tom Harkin and Ryder Jack and, and his team who do some incredible work with young men and young boys in different environments to help open up a conversation around what it means to be a man. And I think that that's a really good conversation that um, particularly male-dominated environments should be having more on a day-to-day basis. What happens then when you do get pushback? I mean, I have to imagine that in some of these environments when you come in, maybe the leaders have brought you in, but there are people in there who go, nah, I don't think so, mate. What do you do with that? Yeah, sometimes there could be pushback. And the other thing I think, Rana, is that you know, I often say this early on in a journey, and this is not just related to gender, but also just culture more broadly, is that when you're dealing with young people, uh, men or women, it's not a matter of if something happens, it's usually when and what. And I think we see a lot of that in sport is that it's not just the teams with the, the poor cultures or the ones that are, are implementing you know, below-the-line education, for example, that are the ones that make mistakes or, or have slip-ups and examples of antisocial behaviour perhaps or, or incidents along the way, but it's also the very strongest cultures. Now, you'd like to think that the stronger cultures, the ones who are the teams that are putting more focus on that area will have less over time and that you reduce the risk of those types of things happening but it is very challenging to eliminate that risk altogether and so I think it's not so much stopping things happening as much as it is if there is something to happen how will we deal with it Mm. Uh, because uh, we can think of almost every team in every professional sport around the world that's had at least one incident every season every year for the last hundred years so I think that that part of it is a big um a big and important role that the leaders in an environment play is around when something happens, do we just let it happen and then move on from it? Or do we let it happen and then make sure we're having some really good quality, robust conversations off the back of it, involving people from multiple levels of the organisation mm. around what did we learn here? Uh, what, went, what, what, ha- what did we expect to happen? What actually happened? Uh, what did we learn from it? And then what are the actions and what might we do differently next time? And and that's a step that I see a lot of teams and organisations don't take is that they just get so mm-hmm. caught up in the season that they're playing perhaps or the the calendar year and the, 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 the busyness and everyone's time poor, right, in any industry, yeah. but they, they move on so fast. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a shame because every time something happens to you within your culture and environment, that is an opportunity to, to learn and grow and improve. Um, and you only learn and grow and improve through conversations about what actually happened and, and what can we take from it. So, and then, you know, if there's resistance, it's, it, you do have to challenge yourself around, well, what's the why here? You know, what, mm. why, why are we getting resistance? Why might that person be coming from a position of defensiveness or, you know, not believing that something's important or not valuing it as much as what they otherwise might? If we've got an understanding of that, like what, is, what are our tactics around ha- having that conversation about the why? Why is this important? Well, it's important because we're not just a sporting organisation here. You know, we're not just 
producing footballers or basketballers or netballers or we're, we're actually trying to produce great people. Mm. And we want to make sure that when when these when these young people leave our environment, that they're able to to go and make a positive contribution for the rest of their life. But we also want to make sure that they can make a positive contribution to society while they're playing the game. Uh, and I think that that's a big shift that we've seen is that whole kind of well-being education space used to be about preparing athletes for when their career ended. I work hand in hand with with a lot of fantastic psychologists in the mental health and well-being area, and and they just see that shift as having been so so important. Is that it used to be about preparing athletes for when their career ended, but now it's about preparing athletes to flourish and thrive throughout their careers. From the very moment they arrive as a 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old in the sporting environment. So I think that, that that shift is a really good one because it means that we're looking at development and growth much more holistically than uh, just just about whether you can you know, kick a football or uh, hit a tennis ball or, or, or uh, throw a netball into a hoop. You've already kind of talked to it in the way you've spoken about a leadership journey and how a leader thinks and even how we move through issues. Can you tell me about storytelling and how you use that in your practice? Yeah, I mean, I love storytelling and I wouldn't say that uh, I'm a super proficient storyteller, but I don't think you have to be. I think you had to have a love for storytelling is almost the essence of life really is that before we had anything else, we had stories. You know, stories are, are the thing that for thousands of years, they've been what brings us together and binds us together as human beings. It's it's our method of understanding ourselves and what's important to us. It's our method of being able to connect our our path with the path of the, the community or the group that we're a part of. And then it's also the main avenue by which the communities that we're a part of pass the learning and knowledge around what's important and where we've come from, from one generation to the next. Um, and we're, we're so fortunate to be, you know, in, a, in Australia, a country like Australia, where we can learn so much from Indigenous culture. You know, people have been around for 60,000 years, Indigenous people of Australia, and, and the passing of stories from one generation to the next is something we can learn so much from. Um, it's, it's, it's such a, a fascinating area. But in the, the sporting uh, area, it's even more important because everyone has a story and everyone's story is special. And our greatest growth comes from embracing our story and celebrating our story and being proud of who we are. You know, even if we've got some some darkness or shadows in the past, it's, it's sort of coming to that point where you really embrace your story. And then the great thing about team environments is when you come together with a group of people is you get to create new stories together. And so there's that new layer that becomes added on is it's not just your story anymore. It's then the story of you and all of those other people that you share that experience with. And I think that's probably the greatest thing I love about team sport uh, and doing the work that I do is that it's about the collective shared experience of life. You can actually use it as a tool to help people celebrate who they are individually, but then you can actually use it as a tool to help celebrate who you are collectively as well too. I love that so much. And I also love just watching you come alive when you talk about this stuff. There's just a light that's coming out of you. It's beautiful. I'm interested in that because to me, that's how you make diversity work. So often I get asked about, you know, well, with diversity comes a clash of ideologies and and difference that might not be reconciled. What I'm hearing is 
we can create spaces where we tell those individual stories and we can have our individual stories, but then we also contribute to an overarching story about the collective. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that that's, that's 100% true. There's a great uh, quote by a lady named Lisa Cron um, from a book about storytelling. And I think she says, story, as it turns out, was crucial to, to our evolution, more so than opposable thumbs. Opposable thumbs let us hang on. Story told us what to hang on to. And I think that that, you know, for me just encapsulates everything that's great about storytelling is it does give you a really powerful anchor for yourself, but then also for everyone around you. And I got asked the question the other day, what is one of my favorite stories from a sporting setting? And I had to stop and think because there are so many, (laughs) so, so many. And the one that I arrived at was, I've done a little bit with the San Antonio Spurs in the NBA. And one of the um, stories I love about Coach Popovich uh, over there, who's one of the, the most experienced and successful coaches in the NBA in world sport, really, but just has this incredible love for his players and far beyond what happens on the basketball court. And I remember the story that they shared with me um, just about the day that we had Paddy Mills, one of our own here in Australia, who was playing over there at the time. Paddy, being a proud Indigenous Torres Strait Islander, was involved in the group, a very big part of their team environment. There was one day in a team meeting, at the start of the team meeting, Coach Pop said to Paddy, Paddy, I understand it's a, a significant day today for you. Do you mind sharing with the group what, why that is? And Paddy's sitting there thinking, oh, I don't know what he's talking about. What is a coach gone crazy here? Is he gone mad? Um, and Coach Pop said, isn't it a, a special day in, uh, in the context of, of your people? And he's, he's still scratching his head. Uh, and he said, it's Marbo Day, isn't it? And, and the light bulb went off in Paddy's head. It, it was. It was Eddie Marbo Day. And Coach Pop had spent time learning about who Eddie Marbo was and the significance of Eddie Marbo to Paddy Mills and to people from Australia uh, and had prompted Paddy at the start of a team meeting to share the story of Eddie Marbo with his teammates before they talked about what they were going to do on the basketball court that weekend or that night. Uh, and I, I just thought that, that, you know, that for me was just such a powerful example of the collision between, you know, kind of identity and culture and belonging and inclusion, which you're so passionate about, Rana, as well, too. And and, and the, the beauty of sport, when it's done well, you know, when mm. leaders in a sporting environment understand the obligation that they have and follow through on it. So that's a story that comes to mind, which is just an incredibly powerful one. Talking about storytelling, and I had a conversation with you recently, and you shared a story with me that linked to what your purpose was. Mm. Uh, and I'm not sure whether you've shared that story before on the podcast, have you? No, I haven't. W- would you um, be open to sharing that with people? Absolutely. Because I, I think it's a it, along similar lines to the, the Spurs story, it, it's just such a great illustration of the collision between leadership and storytelling and, and life, really, in a lot of ways. Uh, well, I said to you that we have a tradition in our faith that it's a fable, really, that basically is be like the perfume seller because the perfume seller whenever they mix with other people the people when they leave the perfume seller invariably will be leave smelling beautiful and so that's sort of how I think about my purpose and that whether it's day-to-day interactions or the work that I do what I leave behind is something better than when I found it. Thank you. Well, I think it's a wonderful story <laughs> and it's such a great articulation of purpose, but it just demonstrates the power of storytelling as people learn something more, along with learning about your purpose, 
they learn something more about you in the process of you sharing that story. And uh, it had a big impact on me, you sharing that. And I think it's such a great illustration of the fact that we don't have to overcomplicate purpose either. <laughs> a lot of people sort of struggle with that question, or what is your purpose in life or, or work? And well, do we ever really know <laughs> as distinct from just sort of reflecting on the things that are most important to us and the impact that we want to have on people day to day? And I think it's a wonderful story. So uh, thank you for sharing that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm Darcy Vessio, a premium defender, and I love listening to The Outer Sanctum. I remember that so clearly because you asked me about my purpose and I sort of went around in circles and circles and then I afterwards said, hang on a minute, I've got, I've got to add this. And it was like, oh, yeah, of course. If I tell you this, you'll know exactly what I'm saying and I don't need to kind of use 100 words. It was quite amazing. I, it was a little bit of a moment for me, Sherry. We've seen some really tough stuff come out of football in the last few weeks around relationships between coaches and their players, allegations, but also, you know, the cultures of clubs, even over the last few years, whether it's racism or sexual assault. Given that this is your bread and butter, when you hear these stories come out, what do you feel when that moment comes? Seeing the the responsibility and the opportunity that you have to set the right example in terms of the way you work through it. I think that's the first thing is that the leaders in the environment and the people who are involved in working through some of these issues, whatever they might relate to, is that you've, you've actually got an opportunity through what has happened to help lead the way, show the example, you know, set the tone for what should be expected more broadly, both now and into the future. And so I think that responsibility that comes with that you know, shouldn't be undervalued or overlooked. That's a really important part of it. Uh, and again, to my earlier point around that it's not a matter of if something happens, it's usually when and what, is that they're teachable moments in a way. You can take so much from them if you approach the conversations and deal with the scenarios that come up in the in the right way. And I think it's a good reminder about just the power of, of allyship. Diversity is strength. There is no no question about it. And I found myself, you know, almost making that point from the outset in a lot of the workshops and 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 talks that I've been giving over the last couple of years is because I I always thought that that was a given, but I don't think it is. Uh, I think it's becoming that way, but I don't think it's a given. And so making that call or, or reinforcing that point. Uh, emphasizing that from the outset, I think actually encourages a conversation then about well, okay, well, how how diverse are we, and what what is diversity, and what does that look like in terms of our culture, our people and personnel, our performance, the the way we we have conversations day to day, and being prepared to sort of really listen, like ask ask the question, then listen, and particularly listen to the voices that sometimes 
are not heard or haven't had the opportunity to be heard before in the past. I think that that's the real power is that no one's great at this stuff, I don't think. But if you come at it from a position of wanting to learn more, to understand better uh, and to then act off the back of it, to produce that really genuine sense of what allyship is in every sense of the word, then becomes an important conversation and one that um, hopefully helps make that culture or environment even stronger than what it already was and, and enable it to deliver for everyone that's a part of that environment as well too. I think that's the most important thing is that everyone can come to work or come to a team environment every day and get what they need from that environment, not just in order to survive, but to thrive. I find myself describing, rather than sort of talking about high-performance culture, high-performance environments, try and talk about high-performance habitats in a way. Like it, And like any habitat in nature, like coming at it from that more sort of organic environmental angle where if you look at it, you know, we're all kind of different members of the animal species as human beings. We all come together in that habitat and we need to get certain things in order not just to survive, but to thrive. You know, so what are those things beyond just food, water, shelter, and Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but moving up that chain around the identity and the self-esteem and the love and the, the belonging, Rana, that I know you're so passionate about being a belonging expert. You know, to what degree do we have that at the moment? If we don't have that, why don't we have that? And what sorts of things can we do? in the words of the people who perhaps are coming from some of the less represented groups to foster and cultivate greater belonging in that environment. That's, that's what I think um, is the benefit of, of some of those conversations that come from some of these things that happen from time to time. You talked about creating those, the habitats of high performance and in fact culture, and we've talked about culture so many times already. What are you looking for when you look for culture? What are the indicators with a good or bad culture, but what tells you what a culture is? You know, there, there are many different aspects to culture. It's a word that gets bandied around a lot, isn't it? And we often mm. use it without probably understanding it or knowing what we mean when we talk about it. I think that there's what's espoused as culture. So that's sort of what we what we talk about that we stand for, whether it's you know, a purpose or our values, a vision, um, our, the behaviours that we value the most. Um, and I talk about those things as uh, cultural foundations. And you want to have really clearly defined cultural foundations. But more importantly than defining them is having multiple people at multiple levels of the organisation involved in talking about what do they think the cultural foundations of that organization are or what are the things that they think are most important uh, including what do they love most about their involvement with that organization and that's one of my favorite kind of culture prompts when you're working through a process of helping a team uh, or a business you know create new cultural foundations is what do you love most about working for dot 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 or what do you what do you love most about playing for dot 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 uh, and and some of the conversations that come off the back of that are just incredible and there's so much, and they often involve stories, <laughs> more often than not. But they're they're more than just words around what you know. It's not about honesty, respect, loyalty, or all of those words that get bandied around in in values conversations. You get people talking from the heart about examples of things that are critically important to them about existing in that environment. But then beyond that, it's obviously what people, the behaviours people display day to day, because it's one thing to write something down on a piece of paper. It's another thing to actually live and breathe it. And so beyond that, I sort of talk about the three R's, you know, relationships. So 
getting the right people together in the environment, having that diversity in that environment as part of that, and then actually having a like a clear set of actions, some of which are structured or formal and some of which are, are unstructured and informal that enable you to build closer, deeper relationships with one another. So that's the first. Uh, the second one is is rituals. So what rituals do you have in place that give you an opportunity to bring your culture to life, to celebrate um, what you're most proud of, to talk about what's going well and to talk about what's not going so well, uh, importantly. Uh, and then the third one is, is is the rhythms. So what are the rhythms of the way people move in and out and around that environment? What meetings take place? What are the key meetings? When do those meetings happen? Um, how long do the meetings go for? Where are the meetings taking place? And not just meetings, the conversations as well too, the rhythms of mm. the meetings, but the rhythms of the conversations as well too. And setting some broad expectations around, well, how do we want to build relationships uh, what do we want those rituals, key rituals to look like? And then how do we establish some of those rhythms that will enable us to um, to bring our desired culture to life on a day-to-day basis? And so that that's that's a big part of it. And and the other thing I'd say is that, you know, culture is not static, is that I think we, we often think that we can clearly define it, write it down on a piece of paper, then go away and execute it to the nth degree. No, no, that's not culture. You know, culture's constantly evolving changing, growing. Culture is the connection of the past to the present and the future as well too. So it's this, it's almost like this organism in itself and Mm. all that the leaders and the members of that culture or environment can hope to do is to help shape that in the best form that they can so that it evolves and creates an environment that's much better for future generations and mm. and that's a you know again we talked before about so what we've got to learn from indigenous culture in particular and I you know one of the things I love a couple of friends who are traditional owners and elders in the indigenous community and just talking to them about that fact that sometimes the western approach is to kind of create success for now or, or, or chase those short-term results whereas the indigenous culture is all about how do we strengthen the culture now so that it's in a better place for future generations when you when you think about culture and leadership from that perspective, it becomes much more about custodianship and eldership than it does about you know elite high performance, if you like. And and so I think that you know creates a really useful and healthy reflection around what is my role in the environment as a as a leader in helping shape and evolve and grow that culture over a long period of time. Now, a good friend does a lot of work. Um, Owen Eastwood, the author of of the book Belonging, you know he advocates for the power of asking the younger cohort within any culture uh, or team environment. Um, the, the, the one question, the really powerful question culturally is what is one thing we could do to make your involvement in this environment better, more enjoyable, more fulfilling and opening up that conversation all of the time with that next generation around what do they want? What do they need? What are some of the things that might help them? Uh, and so I, I don't think we ever get that perfect. And I'm learning all the time as well too, just around the best ways to engage the younger generations coming through. But I think that that, that question is really powerful again, because it comes from a position of not lecturing or knowing better or anything like that. It's asking the question and then sitting and genuinely listening to what the responses are that come back. Uh, and then, taking that information and knowledge and seeing yourself as having a responsibility for following through with it. It feels like culture and team environments, particularly in the AFL, are under the magnifying glass at the moment. And I've heard a CEO not in sport talk about toxic cultures as sometimes being a bit like the asbestos in the walls. 
And we see that sometimes where organizations will identify there's a problem, they'll have a leadership change as part of the solution, but then the problems are still there. And so how much of culture sits with leaders and how much is it something that's kind of in the air almost? Uh, I think it's always co-owned by, yes, the leaders, they inherit sort of a story from coming into the environment from previous generations. So, you know, again, they, they have an opportunity to shape what that looks like going forward. So I think the leaders play a really strong role. But then again, like what, what is a leader? You know, is the, is the leader the person that's in the, the key position? You know, mm. is it the CEO? Is, is the leadership the board? Is it the oldest players uh, or most experienced players? Like leadership can mean many different things. And sometimes the people that we put in leadership positions that have the leadership title are not the actual leaders or they're not the only leaders. And so that's where I think it, it can't be just the leaders in quotation marks because maybe if it's just the defined leaders, then the most important voices are not in the mix. So I think that that combination of people who are in leadership roles, who are responsible for managing people or who are in a leadership group or who have leadership in their job title, yes, absolutely, they need to be involved and they need need to be the ones driving it. But if they're expecting to do all of the work themselves, good luck. (laughs) It needs to be much more of a, I know Brendan Gale at Richmond um, talks about co-authorship you know, it needs to be a process that's co-authored and involving multiple voices from multiple people at multiple levels inside of the organisation and sometimes outside of the organisation as well too is engaging with people who might not be involved day to day but might have been involved in the past or they might be involved in different, they might have a connection to that organisation or that team or club and sometimes you want to get their perspectives and, and voices in the mix as well too. So it's not easy, it's very complex but... I think kind of sitting back and sort of talking about, well, yeah, okay, this is where we're at. This is where we want to get to. Who are the most important people we need to have as part of this conversation? And that's now, but then seeing that as a longer term process where, well, maybe they're the people we have to have part of the conversation now, but then we want to introduce some other voices into the mix as we go along. And so that part of the the process is is really important as well too. And I think I mentioned it, I've mentioned it a few times and in the, in the vein of storytelling, like bringing people together to talk about the stories that help them understand what is great about that place. And then also sharing some of the stories perhaps that illustrate what's not so great or where we want to move away from. Mm -hmm. And we've got two choices with some of that stuff that isn't great is that we either pretend that it doesn't, doesn't happen or didn't happen or was in the past and we'll never go back there again. Or we actually embrace that as part of our story as well too. And there are plenty of examples of that in many organizations all around the world where some of them have got a very dark, dark history or things that have happened in the past that they're not particularly proud of. So you either pretend that didn't happen or you embrace it and talk about it and have it shape what that next chapter of your story looks like or next chapters of your story look like. Mm. Um, And sometimes I think trying to sweep things under the rug doesn't do anyone any service um, or justice at all. Yeah, It's so true. I mean, it it mirrors how we think about trauma too as individuals when we experience a trauma we eventually have to get to the point where we integrate it into our own lives and our stories of who we are and what's happened to us and we don't kind of ignore it so it's remarkable that organizations will do the same thing I know I need to let you go so I've got to ask you a couple more questions I've seen your work close up at Richmond and I've seen it 
when it's been at its best and when it was the club was sort of humming three premierships and even before that 2020 premiership kind of pre-COVID it just felt like a really well-oiled machine and then COVID hits and and this culture that was built the cornerstone of it was connection suddenly you know a lot of that connection was taken away what do you do with that and what have you done with that? Yeah, well, in terms of the Richmond case study, I mean, I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate that that environment, and you, you've been a part of it, Rana, you've you've seen it firsthand. There's so so many fantastic people right throughout the organisation. It's There's not a day go by I, I don't remind myself of how lucky I am, we are, um, everyone is in that environment to be a part of it. Uh, and that's, that's the case for you know, a lot of the, the teams that I work with in different sports as well too is it you have to pinch yourself sometimes and remind yourself of how grateful you should be because there are so many people doing a great job every single day to to kind of make that place a better place to be. <laughs> and I, I think that's one of the great things about team sport is that everyone has a chance in their own shape or form, in their own way to help shape that culture and environment. So Richmond's very much the case in that regard. We're very lucky to have some fantastic people right right throughout. And I think that, you know, probably the, the pandemic impact on team culture more broadly is that we, we were separated for a long period of time. Everyone has been, you know, in the workplace and not just in sport, but in business as well too. So we've gone through this shift where we've, we've kind of been taken away from each other for a, a long period of time. Uh, and then we've been put back together again. <laughs> But it's changed from what it was. You know, I've seen this a lot in the corporate space is that companies, and some did this well and truly beyond the pandemic or before the pandemic, but, you know, with flexible working now and working from home a certain number of days a week, that for most people is, has been embraced as the new way of doing things. And that's a good thing. But it all ha- also has impacts for your ability to connect with one another and have those conversations that we've talked about today uh, that are that are important because if you've got to make a Zoom call or schedule a Teams meeting to talk about you know what's what hasn't gone well with our culture this week, then do you do it <laughs> as distinct from when you're in the office and you pass someone in the corridor or you know you've got that weekly meeting or so I think you know we talk about relationships, rituals, and rhythms before. I think that there's an onus on leaders and managers to make sure that they're not just talking about the way they want the culture to look and feel and operate when they're together in the office, but they're also talking about how they want it to look in the virtual world as well too, when they're away from the office, because that's not going away. You know, that's a part of mm. the way that we're doing things now. So broadly speaking, I think that um, that is kind of the reality of the world that we're in right now. Um, when I think about Richmond and just the experience, and it was in the hub there uh, on, the, on the Gold Coast in Queensland for a few months, and we were in a very privileged position to be up there while people were locked down you know, keeping the the games happening so that the industry could remain alive and that that was a very privileged position for us to be in but you know that there was probably a, the start of a generational shift where you know the list profile of Richmond changed a bit over that period of time and the group become a bit younger or started to become younger and so I know we had some conversations at the time around getting some younger leaders into the mix of the player leadership group and so that 
that hub experience was probably the the first sort of the start of evolving and moving from the current group of leaders to the next group of leaders. It's, it's fascinating or, or reinforcing, I suppose, that um, some of the leaders who were brought into that leadership group environment for the first time during the pandemic are now the current highest performing members of the existing sort of current leadership group, including two new captains with Dylan Grimes and Toby Nankervis, who have done an amazing job taking over from Trent. Uh, and Trent, you know, even back then was starting to say, well, okay, well, what do I want the evolution of my leadership to look like and the captaincy? And so putting those plans in place so that you put yourself in the best possible position for when the succession actually happens. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that's another great lesson is that we could never have predicted the pandemic, could we? But it happened and it's changed things forever. Uh, so just that lesson and learning around you, you should be constantly thinking as a leader about, you know, what are some of those likely changes that might happen and how can you best prepare yourself for where you want to get to off the back of what some of those changes might be. Now, succession planning is one of those things, but then also kind of just talking about, you know, things that could happen, issues management, things that could happen that could derail your culture. And you can use things that have happened to you or things that have happened to others or things that have happened in other parts of the world. Uh, as potential derailers and and thoroughly debriefing those as a way of kind of preparing for them. I've gone way over time, so I'm going to do a Brené Brown. We are both fans of Brené Brown. I know we listen to her podcast, Dare to Lead, so I'm going to do a quick fire for you. <laughs> Sorry, Brené, I'm stealing a little bit. <laughs> Give me an answer, you know, in a sentence or two. Belonging is? The core of human existence. Culture is? constantly evolving and changing leadership is a great responsibility and opportunity finally what's your hope for the sports industry when it comes to culture and leadership that we use our position as a vehicle for great social change to constantly get better year after year after year Thank you so much for talking to me today, Shane. It's been an absolute pleasure. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.